0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Do you want to position yourself for career success? Master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting, the three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the language of business. Boost your resume, grow your network, and advance your career with the HBX Core credential from HBX and business school. Just go to about hbx.com/howstuffworks. Once again, that's about hbx.com/howstuffworks. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, I'm really excited. Do you know why? <laughs> I do know why. It's because today we have an opportunity to combine two great things on the podcast. Those two things being history and baking. Uh, and to me, this fits really perfectly into sort of fall discussions. Because as the weather cools off, baking gets a little more appealing. You don't mind so much if your kitchen gets hot. And it also leads into so many of the kitchen traditions of the autumn and winter months. We're talking with writer Ann Byrne. So Anne Byrne has written numerous New York Times best-selling cookbooks. Probably her most famous are the ones in the Cake Mix Doctor series. She's also trained in Paris at La Varenne École de Cuisine and has even cooked alongside Julia Child, which that's just awesome. Anne's educational background is in journalism. She's the former food editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and that's a post that she held for 15 years. But Anne's newest book delves into history and specifically the place of cake in the United States from the early colonies in the 1600s right up to the modern era. And it's a combination of baking recipes and the history that they reflect. And it's a really deep dive into the relationship between kitchen and culture. So we're going to hop right into my talk with Anne Byrne. Hello, Anne. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, so we have already told our listeners about your new book, but, uh, one of the things that I want to ask you right out of the gate, uh, you have written many cookbooks and I also have to give you a quick personal thank you for the cake mix, cake mix doctor bakes gluten free. Uh, that's a big favorite of mine. So, <laughs> so, um, because as everybody who has ever tried to bake a gluten free cake knows, it, they often come out really clunky and not delicious, but uh, that makes it very, very easy to make really delicious gluten-free cakes. Uh, But but I'm wondering what made you want to shift a little bit more back to your journalism background and write about baking from a historical perspective?
1: I think it's just where I am in my life. You know, I wrote The Cake Mix Doctor at a time when my three children were young and our house was completely chaotic. You know, I was looking for solutions every single day. Uh, and and so for a cake for for me to open up the pantry door and to grab a box of cake mix and make it better um, seemed perfectly natural and normal for my life. And I had no idea that I would write this book that would sort of resonate with other busy people across America and it, like it did. But, you know, where I am now, my kids are mostly grown uh, and I love to write and I've always loved to write and I've loved to research. Uh, and my, my, uh, my husband's a big history buff. And, you know, he was the one who actually was starting to listen to your podcast and kind of told me about them. And so I really, you know, and I felt like also as a writer and as a journalist, when you had questions about a recipe or the story behind a recipe, the answers were not there. You know, the, you can't Google that and come up with the true story or the real story. So I thought, you know, there's something here and I need to document the story behind all these great cakes.
0: Well, and you mentioned in the acknowledgments at the end of the book that as you were writing it, you couldn't believe no one had ever done this before. And Mm -hmm. I was having the same reaction Mm -hmm. paging through it. I was like, why has nobody ever assembled this before? It's such a fantastic read, as well as having yummy things to make out of it.
1: Thank you. You know... One, you would have to be passionate about K, which
0: I am. <laughs> who isn't? Yeah. Uh,
1: and two, it took a lot of work. Yeah. But, you know, I think that people who are interested in history and a journalist who were accustomed to interviewing people and asking a whole lot of questions, um, is, we're totally comfortable with this. And I loved um, finding a lot of the people that I've known throughout my career um you know, retired on some ranch in California or whatever they're doing. And they were there and they answered questions for me. And it was wonderful.
0: I have to wonder, because there is so much research that went into this book, what your most surprising revelation was that you turned up while doing all that research?
1: Um, you know, I think that, I, wonder, one, I had a couple of them. One was when I was uh, researching uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch cooking, which was really a big force behind a lot of our great American cakes, uh, to find that there were two groups of people. There were cake bakers or pie bakers. I had no idea oh. that there was sort of a class system. That was really interesting to me. Um, another one was researching um, the Edith Warner chocolate cake that was baked um, during World War II when the or really right before World War II when when the scientists were out working on the Manhattan Project and here was this you know school teacher from Philadelphia moves out to the west for sort of a peaceful life and realizes she's baking cakes for um the man who created the atom bomb it's just i, I don't i felt like it was a continuous just un- discovery of amazing things that happened around cake.
0: Well, and there are, like I said, there are so many wonderful little discoveries for the reader, kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, I almost use the phrase baked into the book, but even I'm not going to be that funny, (laughs) um, that I can see where that would happen in the research process. Like I I think it would probably be a a state of perpetual wonder. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is uh, you mentioned in the beginning of the book, how the basic ingredients of cake, so flour, eggs, butter, and sugar, have always been there, but they've evolved over time. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and how it's changed what cake really is?
1: Yes, definitely. You know, uh, an important interview I had was with Lainey Sorensen, who is an African American historian in Virginia and has been a scholar of the Mary Randolph Virginia Housewife books. And I'm so fortunate to have talked to Lainey early in the research, and she set me straight. And she said, "Anne, you have to look at this book." Um, as the all about the ingredients and what were the ingredients and who had access to them because that really formed the cake and really butter, eggs, sugar, flour. Those are the key components of a basic cake. Now, of course, we can add baking powder in when it was invented, but really it was those four. And so if you look at them independently and say who had access to that, what time of year was it? Were the eggs laying? Or were the chickens laying the eggs? Were the, was the butter fresh? Did you have butter? Was it wartime Was butter rationed? You know, sugar, who could afford sugar? Did you use molasses instead? And flour, flour was largely regional. And um, it was, you know, milled locally. And during wartime, you know, Americans were not supposed to use a lot of wheat flour just to save it for the troops. So that's where you had other types of flours come in, such as rye flour used in cake baking. And way before that, cornmeal was used in the late, well, early 1800s uh, in pound cakes as a substitute Indian meal. So at different times in our country's history, these four ingredients have been different, have changed. And that affected the types of cakes that were baked.
0: And you also talk about how in testing these various recipes, uh, some of the recipes, and I quote you here, left a whole lot to the imagination. Uh, did you have any disasters in the testing phase? I just picture some horrible wonder happening.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. We always have disasters in <laughs> testing recipes. <laughs> um, one, sometimes when they come from chefs, uh, those recipes, and the other when they come from historic cookbooks. Um Yes, because anybody who's ever picked up an old cookbook knows that uh, old recipes were essentially just an ingredient list. You got no method whatsoever. So you kind of had to do a little research and find out what what was the oven they were using, what kind of pan would this have gone in, um, quick ovens, you know, or a hot oven. And it really wasn't until the turn of the 20th century that, you know, standardized measures came into cake baking and 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 then we found you know the, the thermostats on ovens a little bit later than that, so yeah. So to to be a modern cook and interpret old recipes, you have to do a little bit of digging, and then you have to do some testing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm imagining eating the evidence couldn't have been that bad most of the time. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: especially the ginger, the early gingerbread. Let's just say that gingerbread was a very loose term right. for a cake. Uh, it, it, it encompassed everything from a gingerbread cookie, a, like a hardtack gingerbread cookie, that actually was bought by sailors um, and and used to sort of to ease their stomach on sea voyages because ginger was a stomach settler. And then later than that, cakey gingerbreads became a more refined version of gingerbread. They had molasses in there and spice, but they also had eggs. So gingerbreads, you don't know what you're going to get when you see an old gingerbread recipe. You can kind of look at the ingredients and have some idea. If it's got eggs in it, if the sugar ratio is pretty high, it's going to be a cake, or gingerbread, but you just have to test them.
0: <laughs> well, the good news is even bad gingerbread is probably pretty good gingerbread.
1: So. Yeah, you can um, always dunk it in something. Exactly. Right.
0: <laughs> uh, and you mention in the section of the book that features recipes from 1800 to 1869 that this is really a period where cakes started to diversify a great deal in the United States. Can you talk about the catalysts for that phase of growth that really ultimately changed what the word cake sort of meant?
1: Definitely. You know, before then, I think cakes had been very British. Um, you know, you look at your water cake, your sponge cakes, your pancakes, your fruit cakes, your tea, even the tea cakes, when cakes were served. Very British. But you're right. There were new directions in our country. There was an expansion of our country. And a really great example of sort of a new American cake at that time would have been the cowboy cake. Um, and that was a cake that was a frontier cake. People were taking ingredients with them and moving west. And they were baking cakes in, you know, cast iron Dutch ovens. Uh, and you know, oftentimes, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't take their hands with them to lay eggs. The eggs would not have survived the trip west, so they had to make eggless cakes, and those are the cakes that are what a lot of people call them boiled raisin cakes, where you actually boil raisins down with water until they're just caramel colored, and then you use the liquid in the cake and then use that the raisins in there, and that provides um, a lot of the fat in the cake, and it it makes the cake moist for use you know without eggs, and. People continued to bake this type of cake all through American history. It it went by different names. It was often called war cake. Um, The wonderful writer, M.F.K. Fisher, writes about war cakes that she remembers um, and as a child growing up, and they were the same thing as a cowboy cake. So it was a, a cheap cake.
0: Well, and it's funny, uh, when I was looking through your book and I noticed the cowboy Mm -hmm. cake, in the picture it looks so moist and delicious that I thought there has to be a ton of butter in it. And then when I was (laughs) looking at the ingredients, I'm like, not a disproportionate amount. No, it's just the moisture from all of that that raisin work. Um, It
1: is. It's a really fun cake for anybody to make today. I love that cake. It's (laughs) a big hit, especially in cooler weather. And another example, I think, of, of just the westward movement is uh, are the cakes that are made with nuts that are indigenous to America, like the hickory nut cakes, the black walnut cakes, because as people traveled and as they um, pioneered new land, they foraged naturally from what was growing on that land. And, and and I bet a lot of people can think about recipes from their grandmother, great great grandmother that may have had black walnuts in them, yeah. or hickory nuts.
0: It's so cool.
1: Yeah. And the jam cake is another important cake of that period because that was a German influence. And the Germans who settled in the Ohio area and moved south into Kentucky, Tennessee, North Alabama, and then over to the Carolinas, they brought a very German recipe, a jam cake recipe, with them. And as while blackberries were growing, they would put up the blackberries into jam in the summertime and then for the holidays... Um, make a jam cake to celebrate, a spice cake that had the blackberry jam in the cake. So I really like how she tracked
0: the way that, uh, that Pioneer Travel developed new kinds of cakes as people got access to different ingredients. Yeah, it it really does, as she said, make you think about kind of backwards engineering cakes that maybe have been in your family for a long time and think about, oh, that's why that ingredient probably became part of our our kitchen's vernacular. And I have to say, every time she talks about another kind of cake, as we were discussing, I just want to run in my kitchen and try baking it because they all sound amazing. Coming up, we are going to talk about... The place of chocolate cake, which is a favorite of mine in United States history. But first, we're going to pause for a brief word from a sponsor. A lot of the time we are trying to eat better, make healthier choices, but there's a lot of junk food that's really tempting. And I completely understand. I judge no one that opts for the candy bar, but we all know we could be doing a little bit better. You can avoid that guilt and feel really good about what you're eating for your snacks with NatureBox. Uh, NatureBox will deliver super tasty snacks made with simple ingredients right to your door so you always have something better to snack on without feeling guilty. They have more than a hundred delicious snacks to choose from, ranging from healthy to a little more indulgent, but all of them have no artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Uh, Tracy, I know because it's autumn now, I am really into uh, a lot of the popcorn snacks, including Yum. the salted caramel apple popcorn. That sounds amazing. I have not tried that one. I am still really, really into all the lentil loops in particular. <laughs> aged cheddar lentil loops uh they're particularly a big hit at my house because number one, I love to eat them. Number two, my husband doesn't as much love them, so i I get more for me. That's why the um any of the tree racha cashews are popular at our house because my husband knows I won't eat them while he's gone which is a problem that I have with other snacks. (laughs) So if you want to get in on this yumminess, here is how it works. Go to naturebox.com slash history, pick your snacks, and enjoy. It's just that simple. And one of the best things about Naturebox is their variety. They're constantly adding new snacks based on customer feedback and food trends. And unlike traditional food companies that take between 12 and 18 months, Naturebox can launch new snacks in less than 12 weeks. So there is always something new to try. Plus, if you ever try a snack and you don't like it, NatureBox is going to replace it for free. It's guilt-free and stress-free snacking. Uh, right now, NatureBox is offering you two free snacks when you go to naturebox.com slash history. So again, avoid the guilt. Go to naturebox.com slash history. Get two delicious snacks for free. And this offer is not going to last. So go and get those snacks today. That is, once again, naturebox.com slash history for two free snacks and all the deliciousness you can handle and now as promised chocolate cake talk which is really quite fascinating uh, whether you love it or not it's a pretty interesting story and there's also some fun references to early cooking schools in America as Anne talks about it so let's hop right back in The next thing I wanted to talk about was chocolate cake, because today this yes. is like a standard cake in the US. It's in every American bakery. Most restaurants have it on their menu. It's one of those first cakes you bake if you do any baking at home. But it really didn't appear on the scene until the late 1800s. Um, can, can you talk about the genesis of America's sort of love affair and identity with chocolate cake?
1: Yes, definitely, because it's a per- personal passion of mine. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> chocolate was really first used in candy making and in um, glazes on cakes, glazes and frostings and things. People were not very adventuresome with chocolate in the beginning, but enter, you know, Fanny Farmer and all of those cooking school teachers from Boston and Philadelphia. Well, they started experimenting with chocolate for two reasons. One, it was just the time that people were in. It was sort of a scientific period of American time, and they were curious. They had cooking schools that were very focused on measurements and health and sanitation. Um, They were interested in feeding invalids. Uh, There were a lot of invalids in our country, and old cookbooks of that period of time had chapters on caring for invalids. So you've got these very scientific, health-focused women with this new ingredient, chocolate. And what do they do with it? They tell you to use it sparingly, but that it has its benefits. It is going to make you feel better. It's going to stimulate your health and give you energy. Uh, And then the chocolate companies, the early chocolate companies in our country, hired these cooking school teachers. To develop recipes for them, so those like the Baker chocolate recipes, Aurora chocolate, they were th- these ladies were sort of sidelining, um, you know, creating chocolate recipes that today a lot of them are still on the back of the Baker chocolate box. So, <laughs> the, and, and so chocolate crept into cake baking very gently. Uh, one of the first cakes made with chocolate, we call it today a mahogany cake. Because it is very pale in color, and it has that wonderful whippy seven-minute frosting on it. Um, But that's, that's how chocolate cakes used to look, very pale by comparison to the way chocolate is used in big, deep, dark cakes today.
0: And then I'm going to jump forward a little bit, uh, because in the mid-20th century, there was sort of another explosion of cake experimentation and development of flavors. Um, can you talk about, one, and I, I'm sure we could guess, but we need it from the expert, uh, one, why that era saw such variety in baking, and then two, how it was not just the realm which people might initially think of the the boon of stay-at-home wives, but also working women.
1: Definitely. Are you talking just post-World War or before or during the war period? Uh,
0: I would say post-World War.
1: Post-World War. Yeah. So that brought a lot of change to not only homes and kitchens, but also the way cake was portrayed. I did not know until researching this book that after World War II, a lot of the GIs were given... um, Uh, sort of just given scholarships to attend culinary academies and to uh, study pastry making. And that was the boom in commercial bakeries that came after World War II. And that's when we kind of think of the white sheet cake with the whippy, you know, bakery uh, vegetable vegetable shortening frosting. That's from that era. That's when that came to be. Before World War II, cakes were small. Cakes were very small. And in fact, cupcakes, the first cupcakes were baked during World War II, wartime, when women who were in the factories working would make small, unfrosted cakes called cupcakes and bring them in to the factory and share them with their coworkers. But after World War II, everything got big. You know, suburbs got big, cars got larger, and so cakes got larger. Um, cake mixes were sort of d- uh, developed and experimented with during World War World War II, but it was after World War II when we had the stay-at-home moms and the more baking, more entertaining that you saw more cake mixes being used and all kinds of convenience products, really, in the American kitchen. And then those big, you know, I think in the late 50s, we think of, you know, the, the big popular cakes, the red velvet cake was a big one. I think the Pineapple Upside Down cake, even though that's a 1920s cake, that was really still popular. Um, you know, the Hershey Bar cake was a popular period. Fruit cocktail cake, German chocolate cake came out of that period. But it was that the early 60s changed even those again because we had the influence, the French chef influence of Julia Child and the Kennedys in the White House. And that's what changed cake baking one more time and it gave us the flourless chocolate cake that we love today. And then I could say later in the 60s, the whole California movement. Um, I interviewed Lindsay Shear, who was the first pastry chef for Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. Uh, Chez Panisse opened in Berkeley in 1971. And I, re- I believe that that restaurant and the way those pastry chefs were cooking there changed the way that we bake cakes today because the cakes were more rustic. They were largely unfrosted. They were more Mediterranean in style. It's really fun to see that connection.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a uh, I, again, I mean, this is obvious because this is really what your book is about, but it is fascinating to watch how cakes develop in stride with cultural changes that are going on. Uh, they they so reflect the time. And I have to laugh when you are talking about this era of development, just personally, because I think back and those are all of the cakes that my mom made. I was born in the very early 70s. So she had learned those when she was at that age and in that era. And then those are the cakes that kind of carried her forward in life that she was baking. So when you talk about red velvet and, and German really chocolate. And those are Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> the German chocolate cake. The Italian cream cakes, think about the cakes that we still bake today. If you looked at a period in time that probably was, that gave us our, a lot of our legacy cakes in America, it's probably from 1955 to 1975.
0: And you reference, uh, and write about in this book numerous historical cookbooks, uh, that you, that you worked with. Do you have a favorite among those?
1: Oh, I love them! I love the housewife cookbooks, and that there's a there's actually a big box in the book on the original housewife. Yeah, <laughs> um, tried to have a little fun with it, you know, because there was the Virginia housewife, Mary Randolph, the Kentucky housewife, and the Sarah and the South Carolina housewife among, and then even before that, there were German um, housewife books written in German, um, with the whole idea that you you it was not just cooking and baking, but it was making a home. And it was a lot of household sort of primer advice on how to set a table, how to how to be married, how to how to be happy, how to raise children. I love reading those old books. They're a lot of fun.
0: Uh, This is one thing that just piqued my interest when I was looking at the book. Will you tell us about mayonnaise cake?
1: (laughs) You know, mayonnaise cake is is a good example, let's just say it's possibly a depression era cake. It's a hard times cake, as so many of our cakes and other foods like casseroles were, because people were trying to make do. So something with a mayonnaise cake, you've got, you're using mayonnaise in the cake, which has both the eggs and the oil. It became sort of a shortcut cake, an economizing cake. Um, a 19 or probably an idea that came out of the 1930s that then became part of pop culture in food, largely helped by food manufacturers who would put the recipe on the back of the container.
0: Have you ever made a mayonnaise cake?
1: I have made a mayonnaise cake, and uh, and they're they're incredibly moist. <laughs> a lot of people love them. They're a little salty for me. Ah. That's my own little thing. You know, mayonnaise, I think commercial mayonnaise has a lot of salt in it. Yeah. Possibly if you made a mayonnaise cake with homemade mayonnaise, which sort of defeats the purpose. Right. um, You you know, you wouldn't have that. But I find them a little too salty for my taste. Because by the time you add baking powder, which has salt in it and, um, you know, maybe some salt in the cake. Right. That's just a little personal. (laughs) Uh,
0: Was there any other ingredient that you came across in your research that either made you blanch or wonder why anyone (laughs) would put it in a cake?
1: Well, there's the chocolate sauerkraut cake. That's, um, you know, that was when I was writing for the the Atlanta newspapers way back when. I remember receiving a chocolate sauerkraut cake recipe from the sauerkraut growers of America or something. and thinking, okay, well, that'll wind up in the trash. And then I received another one, and we ended up writing sort of a column on the wacky recipes that we received from food manufacturers. And that was one of them, so I actually baked it, and it was pretty good. It was pretty good. So when I was doing the research on this book, I realized that it kept popping up again in older cookbooks in Idaho and out west, and I didn't want to forget that part of the country, um, so we did include it. And it was an early... German cake recipe. They had the sauerkraut. They realized that sauerkraut made the cake more moist, and they were baking with chocolate. Germans have always cakes. Uh, Germans have always loved to bake with chocolate and with spices. So that's a really nice cake. But um, another cake, I think that is important. and sort of like that is the applesauce cake. Oh yeah, yeah. But that's I, I actually call the recipe in the book the 1917 applesauce. Cake. Applesauce cake because it is a classic World War One recipe when people were trying to do without eggs, baking without right. baking out without fat, without eggs. So they found that they could actually cook down and make applesauce out of their own apples or you could purchase applesauce then at the grocery. And it was a shortcut cake. And there were a lot of uh, U.S. government recipe brochures that were provided to people on ways to bake uh, during times of war. And an applesauce cake was one that was baked universally, and it still is today. great cake.
0: So, of course, it makes absolute total sense that a lot of the more unique cakes that we have were born from trying to make things work with various ingredients that were sparse uh, during wartime. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that with cakes before, but we have talked about that general theme on the podcast before when we talked about spam making its way into wartime cuisine, especially in places that had a high, uh, high percentage of American GIs. Yeah, it's one of those things when I asked her about mayonnaise cake, I asked because I thought it was so funny. But then when she talks about, oh, it's because they were trying to make up for, you know, not having eggs and oil readily available. I'm like, oh, duh, I feel full yeah. of... <laughs> well, and I think... It- I think angel food cake came from the the dilemma of like, what do I do with all these egg whites? I needed all the yolks for this recipe. <laughs> what do I do with all this egg white now? I didn't ask her about that, although I have heard that before. And coming up, we're actually going to talk about Mardi Gras and king cake. But before we do, let's pause for a quick break, and we will talk about one of our fabulous sponsors. So, uh, a smartphones pretty much almost ubiquitous at this point. But when you lose your smartphone, uh, you don't feel all that smart. I, the thing I lose is not all that smart. It's my keys. And they're always in my home. I mean, I haven't literally lost them. I have stuck them somewhere that I cannot remember. Uh, and Tracker makes this absolutely a thing of the past. Normally, previously, in the pre-Tracker world of my life, if I, if I misplaced my keys somewhere in the house, it became this lengthy ordeal of tearing things apart, trying to find my keys, and like texting my husband to say, have you seen my keys? And if he's busy, then I get more frustrated that he's not answering me at my demand to tell me where my keys are when it's not his responsibility to find my <laughs> keys. Uh, this is no longer an issue because of Tracker. Uh, there, In the Tracker app, there's a button that you can press that will make your Tracker make a noise. And so you can just press that button in your house. And your keys will ring at you and you can go find them. So, I mean, Tracker makes losing things a thing of the past. It's this coin sized device that lets you find your keys, your wallets, your bags, your computer, anything in seconds. You just pair it to your phone and attach it to anything and you'll find its precise location with a tap of the button. It is super, super easy. If you lose your phone, you can press your button. You can press the button on the tracker and your phone will ring even when it is on silent. With more than 1.5 million devices, Tracker also has the largest crowd GPS network in the world. So when your lost item is not physically in your house, it's going to show up on a map, even if it is miles away. You will never lose anything again with Tracker. Listeners to this show get a special discount of 30% off your entire order. Go to the, spelled T-H-E, Tracker.com and enter promo code history. The hardest thing you'll have to find is their website. Go to the tracker.com right now enter promo code history for 30% off your entire order again that is the tracker.com promo code history now we will get back to our story so you may or may not know that the king cake that you're probably getting from your local bakery is not really like either of the original styles of king cake served here in France. And we're going to talk about that with Anne Byrne, as well as presidential cakes in this next segment. It's a little bit of a selfish topic because I love Mardi Gras and the cake that most of us are eating today and calling king cake that we get from bakeries is really more of a Danish. But you have in this book a couple of other versions of king cake that are a little more authentic to France and New Orleans in an earlier time period. Will you talk about those a bit?
1: Yes, definitely. I have two king cakes in the book. The first one, which is in the first chapter, is the oldest, and that is New Orleans king cake. That is a brioche style cake. So it is a, it's like a bread cake because it has yeast in it, but it's sweet. And that came to New Orleans, we think in about 1718 with the Basque settlers in New Orleans. So New Orleans was, is, was just a fascinating place it is still a fascinating place I think in America for food but we tend to think of early American um, cakes and cooking just from the colonies there was so much going on in New Orleans with uh, with the French and the Spanish and the Basque and the Haitians and just all that sort of melting pot that created the Creole and the Cajun cuisines that we love today so that was the first one a yeast a yeast base and then in the 70s um there became popularized a cake that was is made in a lot of homes in New Orleans and it still is today uh, for Mardi Gras or to be served on Epiphany, and it is the French style, which is puff pastry. So that those are the two distinct styles, and and the puff pastry version was popularized in the 70s. What with Pepperidge Farm, you know, frozen puff pastry being available, but what you have served most of the time to tourists. Uh, during Mardi Gras is a Dan- like you said, you're right, is a Danish, and that is because those bakeries um, could get commercial Danish from Cisco or whatever you know distributor pre-made, and then they turn it into king cake. That's not true king cake. Right. King cake is either brioche or puff pastry.
0: Well, and I imagine the the Danish stuff ships a little more easily, and I know there is huge business around shipping out from New Orleans at this point.
1: Very true. But for fun, make the French king cake.
0: Oh, I'm going to make all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I wanted to mention was this really darling chart that you have in the book with presidents and their favorite cakes. Uh, (laughs) Did you come across any information in your research about whether presidential preference made a cake more popular during his time in office?
1: You know, I, I looked for that, and and you would think that it might, but probably the one cake of all cakes, and it's in the book as the Mary Lincoln white almond cake, was the cake that was most associated with a president. And unfortunately, I think that's because you know President Lincoln was assassinated, and so this recipe, Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln's recipe, which is a Lexington, Virginia recipe, it's a essentially a pound cake uh, with almonds in it, lovely, um, was a cake that she baked for President Lincoln when they courted. And it became the cake that memorialized Lincoln after his death. So it was baked and served at banquets uh, to honor President Lincoln. Um, a little the same, the Washington cake is is baked throughout history, not so much anymore, but pick up an old cookbook and you're going to find a Washington cake. And it's kind of a one-size-fits-all cake. If it's a pound cake, you can call it a Washington cake. If you want to grate some lemon zest in it, it's a Washington cake. It was just a way of, you know, celebrating George Washington. But in more recent times, I don't think so. We've got, you know, the um, I've got a Sarah Polk, uh, wife of James K. Polk, her uh, hickory nut cake in here. But of recent time, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was linked all over to clove cake, which is the molasses spice cake. A lot of references there. And I remember stories always saying that Lyndon Johnson loved summer fruit, what they call in Texas, summer fruit cake. And I was so curious about what makes a summer fruit cake in winter, but that is the cowboy cake.
0: That's ah, the frontier cake. now does it have additional fruit in it? in addition to raisins, or is it still just a basic? No, but it's basic? Just,
1: it would be a hot weather cake. It would be a, a, a cake you would bake, a fruit cake you would bake in the summertime as opposed to the one that you made during the holidays, winter holidays, that had a lot of expensive fruits in it and maybe was soaked in bourbon and wrapped up in cheesecloth and, you know, served when the weather was cooler. A summer fruit cake was lighter, so it would have been more like a boiled raisin cake. And then, you know, more recently, Jimmy Carter has always said that he loved the Lane cake. I always thought that was interesting because Carter is from, you know, Plains, Georgia, home of peanuts. You would think it would be something like the peanut cake, but it's actually the Alabama state cake, which is the Lane cake. But down in that part of the country, I do know because I lived down there for a while, um, you know, much of the many of the cakes that are baked and beloved in 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 Alabama are actually loved by you all in Georgia Oh as well and back and forth.
0: Cake has no borders in my book. Um, I like (laughs) it from anywhere. Uh, For Mm -hmm. listeners who are perhaps interested in exploring baking with recipes from history, but might be a little trepidatious about which ones are good to start with, do you have any advice for them?
1: Yes, I would try the lazy daisy cake. Um, It's a one pan cake. It's a, it's a typical a 1930s cake. It's got a great story. It's just a yellow cake baked in a 9 by 13 pan, but then you make this fabulous ooey-gooey topping of cream and brown sugar and coconut, and you pour it over and then throw it under the broiler. Uh, it makes a great cake for a party or for a birthday, and you just cut it into squares. It's super easy. Um, the others, uh, the James Beard huckleberry cake, you can use blueberries in that instead. That's a great one for kids to make, it's just a very simple cake. It's easy to put together, and you bake it in a square pan.
0: Uh, and both of those give you historical baking bragging rights, which is great. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> were there any historical techniques that you came across that were surprising that might make good tips for modern bakers?
1: Wow, so interesting. I, I came across some odd ones, um, like like on the, the you know the supposedly the Shakers um, would whip egg whites with a peach branch because it imparted the peach flavor into the egg whites which we know cannot be possible it's just a branch off of a tree uh i love that one and the <laughs> i
0: love i'm literally making the shock face over here that's fantastic <laughs> and super weird that was
1: that was pretty crazy and then the the old old recipe in the front of the book the water cake that was really a fun i've never heard of a water cake well that was a sponge cake that You know, back when sugar was not granulated and it was sold in cones, and you snipped off what you needed, you had to dissolve it in hot water and boiling water before you could pour it into the cake batter. So they used to call those water cakes. Um, But I think, as far as looking at old recipes and learning something from them, I think that we've over. I think today's cakes, modern cakes, are over frosted. We've put Way too much frosting. So if if a 100 years from now, a historian was doing this project and looking back, they would probably say of this era, and especially all the cupcake era and the tall frosting, that this obviously was an, a time of economic boom, that we had a plenty of everything, that the portions were too large, the sugar too much. Um, and I think we could look back on the old cakes and say, you know, they had something right. They were baking in an eight-inch pan. They didn't put, they didn't use a lot of frosting. Maybe what frosting they did use, they just piled on top of the cake. Um, or they made a wonderful filling of a custard or a lemon curd that went between the layers. They used local blackberries or strawberries on top of the cake. Or they made homemade ice cream to go with it. And it was just a pancake. It was very simple. So I think that we could maybe look at how the portions and how cake was presented going forward and sort of rethink, do we need six layers and a foot of frosting?
0: Sometimes. Sometimes we do. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you the Sophie's Choice question. Do you have a favorite cake?
1: I'll, I'll give you two because these are two that I was not raised on. And that's why I think they're my new favorites. It might change six months from now. But I love the Chez Panisse almond Torte because it is it's just so elegant, timeless, perfect for a birthday, dinner party. And that's the that is the Lindsay Shear interview I did that and I love it. You make the whole thing in the food processor and pour it in the pan. Oh. It's dead easy. Um, I love that cake. And I also love the Wellesley fudge cake. Because if you want a bang up delicious chocolate layer cake that wellesley fudge cake and and i was not raised on it growing up in tennessee but everyone i talked to in new england was raised on the wellesley fudge cake and loved it um and i can see why it's a dandy
0: uh there are so many cakes in this book that I got ridiculously excited about. Uh I am totally making cinnamon flop for my husband at some point cuz he's a big cinnamon <laughs> fan. And I actually did try my hand. There is a, a recipe and I'm blanking out. There's it's an adjacent recipe to the cinnamon flop cake that features a caramel icing and I did make that and it was magnificent. Um so, super yummy, I was excited that your brown derby cake was in there. the grapefruit cake.
1: I love that story of Harry Baker, the traveling salesman turned pastry chef
0: yes, well, and you you probably know this that uh Disney World serves that cake in their version of the brown derby oh that's right
1: that was my, I and did it's have actually one
0: it's quite good, I have to say
1: <laughs> um it is quite it's good and 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 this recipe we it took a while to get this one right because we boy, getting those grapefruit, you know, the sections of the grapefruit and where to put them and how to arrange them on the cake so that when you sliced into it, they just didn't fall out. And it's a beautiful cake, though.
0: Well, and it's, it's surprising to me how much I love that particular cake because I'm not really a citrus fan. But there's something mm-hmm. about the lightness of it combined with the citrus, that makes it not it it doesn't do to me what other citrus does, which is usually I just find the flavor a little overwhelming. But it's really yeah. delicious. Um, you also have an amazing blog, and uh, I have to thank you uh, for the cheese date cookies recipe that you posted not too long back. Oh,
1: thank you. That was my grandmother's recipe. We made that for a reunion.
0: It is. Such a wonderful and unique thing. And it's one of those things that I think if you haven't experimented much with baking, uh, you may see those, some of those ingredients together and go, what? But oh, it's beautiful counterpoint. Uh, so for our they listeners. Are. Did that you don't dust know,
1: them with the powdered sugar or did you leave them plain?
0: Uh, a li- a little powdered sugar. Okay. I didn't no. go crazy with it. Um, <laughs> which is shocking for me, but it's, Oh, it's so beautiful! So, for our listeners, one, I encourage you to go read this blog. But two, it's a date wrapped in this cheddar cheese based dough. It is amazing. It's so amazing. Um, it's the best. So, speaking of your blog, uh, where can people find you online if they want to find out more about? Yeah, if you cakes? can. Well, my
1: blog and website is annburn.com. dot com a n n e b y r n dot com. That's where I blog and talk about my cookbooks. Um. Yeah, and then you, you know, as far as um, my, my, I've got I'm all on on all social media, so Facebook as well. Facebook is the Cake Mix Doctor, and Instagram is Ann Byrne, so kind of and Pinterest is Ann Byrne as well. So yeah, I'm all over. And Enjoy easy to it.
0: Find. consistent naming. It's, it's so fun, and it's such a delight to get to to speak with you. I really just delighted in this book. Uh, because oh, I, thank
1: you so much well i i am so glad you like it and and you appreciate all the, the stories behind the cake
0: I mean, there's a whole chapter on icings and frostings. <laughs> <laughs> uh I love this book
1: um oh, thank you,
0: yeah, it's wonderful, and I think for anybody that likes baking and particularly likes incorporating a little bit of history at home on a daily basis, it's a perfect uh way to get into that and i I will say I was a little uh fretful because i i'm a little bit i love to bake but i can be a lazy baker so it was really mm-hmm. nice i had that that concern that oh these will all be very difficult and have a kajillion steps but it's really not nearly so tricky as i had anticipated so i was delighted oh well, good
1: yeah, well, it's always a good bet to, if you feel that way, to look for the recipes that are the shortest. And start <laughs> there. <laughs>
0: um, Anne, thank you so, so much for sharing your incredible depth of knowledge about history and pastry with us. Uh, I feel so fortunate that
1: we got to spend some time with you today. Well, I, it was just such a treat to be on your show. I just love it.
0: Uh, well, that is a, a ridiculously delightful compliment. I never feel like I deserve those, but I'm happy to have them. Uh, so <laughs> yes, you do. Thank you once again. And uh, for our listeners, all of the information she just mentioned, we'll be sure to include in the show notes uh, and everyone can get to historical baking right away. Holly I, I think you and I agree that uh, we're, we can't totally get behind this cutback on frosting opinion right I'm I'm like a uh, some sort of insect I really am big on the sugars <laughs> whenever there's cake at the office I'm like can I get a corner piece with flour on it yes thank you uh, but I really do encourage any of our listeners to kind of test out a little bit of historical baking and I will say the um the Caramel icing that I mentioned when I was speaking with her that I made from her book is really, really delicious, and it will satisfy just about any sweet tooth, and you don't actually need very much. Uh, Once again, Anne's book, American Cake, is a lovely way to connect with history in the kitchen, and I just want to thank Anne so much for spending time with us and sharing her incredibly vast knowledge of cake history. She knows so much about cake. We were talking on Twitter last night as I was reviewing this, and she called herself a cake nerd, and I found that terribly endearing. Well, <laughs> and I was so glad you were able to do this uh, interview because coincidentally, one day when I was in the office and you were not, which is never like that's it's very a, rare, an incredible rarity. Uh, I happened to be the one who opened the mail, uh, and there was a review copy of that book, and I was like, "This is for Holly, this is Holly's thing," <laughs> because I like cake, but like you, I knew that was totally your ball game. Well, and I, I, it's not in the interview. We talked about it after the fact that when the book first came and I was, I was like, how on earth is this going to work? It's cake and history. And then I opened it and was like, I'm in so much trouble. I'm so deep down a rabbit hole <laughs> because there is so much great history mixed into the book. You know, it's not like, here's a little brief bit of history and then it's all recipes. It's really a lot of history and the recipes are phenomenal and I want to make them all. Yeah. Well, and there's definitely uh, cake history in the rest of the world too. So, Yeah, Uh, Maybe someone will will write books of international cake history. That sounds fine to me. I will also read those books. (laughs) Um, And now I have a little bit of listener mail. Uh, I'm going to keep it kind of brief because that episode runs a little bit long. Because I could not stop talking about cake. Uh, but I have two, uh, postcards. One is from our listener, Jesse, who says, Dear Tracy and Holly, by complete chance, I found myself recently in Bingen, Germany. And thanks to your recent podcast on Hildegard von Bingen, I knew the story of the city's well-known abbess. The church features, uh, on the front of this, oh, the church featured, sorry, on the front of this postcard is home to an altar, uh, which portrays Hildegard's life. As a long time his listener, thank you for The hours and hours of entertainment over the years. So it's a lovely, uh, photograph of the, uh, church where that, that altar sits. And then we got another really cute postcard from Grace. Uh, and she just writes a very sweet, brief thank you on the back for the podcast. But, uh, what I really, really liked is that this postcard is from Tokyo Disney Resort. And it's very cute. It is of the seven dwarves from Snow White. But what's really charming is that they are holding bamboo shoots, <laughs> which, which are not uh, normally part of the Snow White story. But they're very sweet. And it's an absolutely beautiful postcard. So thank you to both of those listeners and everyone who writes us. We appreciate it so much. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at housetuffworks.com. You can also find us pretty much across the spread of social media as missed in history uh, if you would like to learn a little bit about anything that is on your mind at the moment you can go to our parent site howstuffworks.com search for that thing that's on your mind in the text bar and a ton of content will churn right up for you to explore and get lost in much like I got lost in the cake book uh, <laughs> uh if you would like to uh, come and visit us, you can do that at mistinhistory.com, where Tracy and I have put all of the episodes of this show from way back before we were on it up to the present day, as well as show notes from the times that Tracy and I have been hosting and occasional other goodies. So we encourage you visit us at mistinhistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
1: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to
0: Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another Similar trips, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do.